it was my intention to preach the first 10 messages of 1999 on the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, we've missed a couple of weeks, so I've decided to change it to the Eight Commandments and see if you notice. Which two would you like to leave out? You know, a lot of people wouldn't notice. My son rented the movie The Mask of Zorro the other day, and so while we were iced in, I watched it. And on one occasion, Zorro hides in a Catholic church. And when the enemy comes in, he jumps in the confessional booth. And a girl comes in and says, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And he says, What did you do? And she said, Well, I have broken the fourth commandment. And he pauses and he says, You killed somebody? And she looks shocked and she says, No, that's not the fourth commandment. And she goes on to explain to him that the fourth commandment is honor your father and mother. Now, that's a humorous little scene. But you know something? Zorro wasn't the only one who didn't know what the fourth commandment was. Because she didn't know either, and neither did the writer of the movie. Because the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I'm sure that most of the moviegoers didn't catch that because most people don't know the Ten Commandments. In fact, if I asked you this morning to take out a piece of paper and write down the Ten Commandments, how far down the page would you get? Probably not all ten. So we're going to take our time and we're going to go through these great commandments that God wrote in stone on Mount Sinai. And I think you will find this a very pertinent study. We live in a society that has lost its moral compass. We live in a values vacuum. Moral relativism is the rule of our day. That's why we hear people say, if it feels good, do it. Anything goes. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. There's no such thing as right and wrong. There are just differing opinions. A recent poll revealed that 67% of Americans believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And according to the book New Absolutes, 7 out of 10 Americans agreed with this statement there are no absolute standards for morals or ethics. And there's no real hope on the horizon because among baby busters, which is the generation from about age 20 to 35, more than three out of four say there is no absolute truth. Jay Leno has a little section on his show where he goes out in the street and he asks the man on the street, he asked one lady if she could name any of the Ten Commandments. And she said, is one of them freedom of speech? I guess that really shouldn't surprise us. Because we no longer teach the Ten Commandments in our classrooms. We have taken them off the walls of our schools. They are being removed from our courtrooms and our government offices. We seem to be doing everything as a society to eliminate moral standards. And yet I came across an interesting quote. James Madison, fourth president of the United States, the man considered to be the father of the Constitution, said this, 
We stake the future of this country on our ability to govern ourselves under the principles of the Ten Commandments. But people today are not listening to James Madison. Today, people tend to listen to people like Ted Turner. Not long ago, he told National Newspaper Association members in Atlanta that the Ten Commandments were obsolete. He said, quote, We're living with outmoded rules. The rules we're living under are the Ten Commandments, and I bet nobody here even pays much attention to them because they are too old. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Today, the Ten Commandments wouldn't go over. Nobody around likes to be commanded. Commandments are out. He proposed that we substitute them with ten voluntary initiatives. Now, with all due respect to Ted Turner, the Ten Commandments are not outmoded rules. The Ten Commandments are as relevant as ever. They are not obsolete. They are absolute. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah warned against this kind of logic in Isaiah 5.20. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That describes our day. People call evil good, they call darkness light, they call wrong right because they have abandoned the absolute standards of God. And so for the next two to three months, we're going to go back and examine the Ten Commandments. Now there's a lot of confusion today, even among Christians, on the part that the law is to play in our lives. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 says, We are not under law but under grace. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that as a Christian, it's okay for me to lie and steal and commit adultery? Does that mean that Ted Turner is right when he said that the Ten Commandments are outmoded? Well, Paul asked that same question in Romans 3.31. He said, do we then nullify the law through faith? Now that Christ has come, and now that we are to come to Him by faith, is the law eliminated? And then he answers the question this way. He says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law is not eliminated by the gospel. The law is established by the gospel. Now, how does it do that? Well, let me suggest three ways. Number one, its purpose is fulfilled. Number two, its penalty is for fulfilled. And number three, its potential is fulfilled. First of all, its purpose is fulfilled. Now, most people have the misconception that the purpose of the law is to save them. And that's why when you talk to people about salvation, about going to heaven, they will often say, well, I think I'm going to make it because I'm doing the best I can. I am trying to keep the Ten Commandments. But see, the law never saved anybody because it can't. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law only has one purpose. And that purpose is to bring us to Christ. And it does that two ways. Number one, it shows us our sin. In James chapter 1 and verse 23, we're told that the law 
is a mirror. Now, what does a mirror do? A mirror shows you what you look like. Most of us looked in a mirror this morning. Some of you obviously should have looked a little more closely. But when you looked in the mirror, it showed you your flaws. It showed you that smudge on your face. It showed you that pimple on your nose. It showed you your hair sticking out. That's what the law does. Romans 3.20 says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows you what you look like morally. The law shows you what you look like to God. It shows you the flaws in your life. It shows you that you are a sinner. In fact, the Bible even says that the law stirs up sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says, For the law came in that the transgression might increase. The law didn't cause sin to decrease. It actually caused it to increase. How does it do that? By stirring it up. I watched Shane this morning. He came in and got a glass of milk and he put his favorite uh, food in there, Nestle's Quick. Now, when he put the Nestle's Quick in the milk, you really couldn't see a whole lot of difference in the milk until he took out a spoon and began to stir it. Now, if you put Nestle's Quick in your milk and drink it, you end up with all that crud at the bottom. You've got just as much Nestle's Quick, but it isn't spread out. You put the spoon in and you stir it, and what happens? It spreads throughout. The law is the spoon that stirs up sin in our lives. You've all seen the person walking around with the sign unknowingly stuck to their back that says, kick me. I would suggest that that would be more effective if you're going to do something like that to stick a sign on somebody's back that says, don't kick me. Because you see, Ted Turner is right when he says, Nobody likes to be commanded. And the law stirs up sin two ways. Number one, it gives us new ideas. See, when somebody walks by and it says, don't kick me, you say, I hadn't even thought of that. When God laid out his laws, we said, hey, there's a new one I hadn't thought of. It stirs up ideas. It also, secondly, stirs up rebellion in us. Because we say in our fallen flesh, oh yeah, you're telling me not to kick you? Oh yeah, I'll show you. The law stirs up sin in our lives. And so the law is a mirror. It shows you your sin and it even stirs up your sin. You see, that's all that a mirror can do. A mirror can show you your problem. It can't solve your problem. You can look in the mirror and see that you've got dirt on your face, but you can't wash your face in the mirror. You have to go somewhere else. And that's why the second thing that the, the second purpose of the law is to show us the Savior. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law is our school teacher to lead us to Christ. As you see your own condition, it drives you to the open arms of Jesus. And so the purpose of the law is fulfilled. It shows us our sin, and it shows us our Savior.
Secondly, its penalty is fulfilled. What is the penalty that the law requires of those who break it? Well, it's death. And at Calvary, the demands of the law were satisfied when Jesus died in our place. The penalty was paid. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 says that God canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The entire debt of sin that you owed to God and could never pay back was nailed to the cross. And it is forever stamped, paid in full. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And how did he fulfill the law? By paying its penalty. And so its purpose is fulfilled, its penalty is fulfilled, and then thirdly, its potential is fulfilled. What is the potential of the law? Well, it's righteousness. And that potential has been fulfilled two ways in the life of a believer, positionally and practically. First of all, positionally. Paul uses Abraham as as an illustration of this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The word reckoned is an accounting term. It It means put to his account. And so when Abraham believed God, God took the sin, his sin, out of his account. He put Christ's righteousness in his account. And that's true of every believer. Positionally before God, I am righteous. One of the most exciting phrases in all the Bible is the little phrase, in Christ. It's used 27 times in the book of Ephesians. And it tells me that when God sees me, he doesn't see me as I am. He sees me in Christ, in his righteousness. Positionally before him, I'm righteous. And that's why throughout the New Testament, believers are called saints. Saints means holy ones. You say, I ain't no saint. Yes, you are, if you're a believer, because positionally you are holy before God. But there's a second way that's fulfilled, and that is practically. And for that, I want you to look just a moment at Romans chapter 8. Important couple verses here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, what couldn't the law do? The law could not produce righteousness in us. And the reason it could not do it is it says here it was weak. But if you'll notice, it was not the law that was weak. It was the fact that the law was working through us. We were the weak link in our sinful flesh. But it says what the law couldn't do, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his son Jesus who died in our place and condemned sin in our flesh. What's the result? Look at verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The moral requirements of the law can now be fulfilled in us. How? Because we no longer walk according to the flesh, we walk according to the Spirit. When you got saved, Jesus gave you His Spirit 
which provided you with the potential to fulfill the requirement of the law. And so salvation by faith doesn't make the law void. It makes keeping the law a possibility. That's why in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. God is saying the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is this. I am no longer writing my laws on tablets of stone. I am now writing my law on your hearts. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's exactly what God does. He writes His law on your heart. And so God's moral law is just as fresh today as ever. In fact, even more so. And so as we go through this study on the Ten Commandments, if you're an unbeliever, my prayer is that these commandments will show you your sin and lead you to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're a believer, my prayer is that the Spirit will apply them to your life in a very practical way. But I also have another purpose. And for that, I'd like you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses repeats the Ten Commandments before the children of Israel enter into the Promised Land. And immediately afterwards, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says this, beginning in verse 6, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. These words that I am commanding you today, what words? The Ten Commandments. You know, we're often appalled that the Ten Commandments are taken out of our public schools. But God has a greater concern. His concern is, are they written on the doorposts of your house? Are you teaching them to your children? In the most recent presidential election, the catchphrase seemed to be family values. And both parties were kind of doing a tug-of-war over who was going to claim that little phrase family values. But Newsweek magazine asked an essential question, whose family values? Is it the Simpsons or the Cosbys or the Waltons? That's a good question. Because if you noticed, neither political party wanted to define those values. In a recent speech, William Bennett said this, it is now politically correct to believe in family values but it is not politically correct to get specific about them. About as specific as anybody gets is we want to have traditional family values. Well, if you want traditional family values, you have got to go back further than Ozzie and Harriet. You have got to go back thousands of years to the place where God laid out family values, and that's in the Ten Commandments. And if you'll notice this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you are not, or, or chapter, yeah, chapter 6 and verse 6, you are not simply to teach your children. Notice what he says in verse 6. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. 
They are first to be applied to you. You are to be a living illustration of the things that you teach your children. And so as we go through these Ten Commandments, we're going to try to make them real in our lives so that we can then pass them along to our children. Now, in the time remaining this morning, we're going to look at the first commandment. The initial list is in Exodus chapter 20, but we don't have to go back there because we're already in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and look at verse 6. Here they're repeated in full. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what is another God? It's anything that takes the place in your life that God deserves. It's anything that dominates and controls your life. It can be your career. It can be another person. It can be possessions. It can be sports. Even good things can be God's when I give them first place in my life. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. And the first commandment is that you are to cling to and rely upon God alone. You are to let God be God. You are to put God first. He is to be the top priority in your life. Now, what does that mean? And how do I measure that? Well, look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here we're given a commentary on the first commandment. And we see it in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now the Jews referred to this verse as the Shema, because that is the Hebrew word for the first word in this verse, which is hear. This is the most often quoted verse by the Jews. In fact, it's the only verse that I know in the Hebrew language. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echai. And you have to spit on the last word. <laughs> Listen, Israel. The Lord is God and the Lord is one. And that is really synonymous with the first commandment. He's not simply saying that the Lord is one in quantity. He's saying that the Lord is to be one in quality, first in priority. Now, how do you measure that? How do you measure whether God is first in your life? Well, look at verse 5, because he tells us here how to measure that. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What is the measure of our love for the Lord. Well, he doesn't say here you're to believe that the Lord is one. He doesn't say you're to quote this verse twice a day like Orthodox Jews do. He says you are to love the Lord with all your heart. That's the measure of whether he's first. Now, how much do you love the Lord? Well, he tells you here three ways we're to love him. Number one, he says we're to love him sincerely. Verse 5 says, with all your heart. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 6, Jesus spoke of people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. God doesn't want 
pretense. He doesn't want feigned love. And parents, do you know what your children need to see at home? They need to see a burning, passionate, emotional sincerity when it comes to the things of God. Kids can spot a phony a mile away. And they know whether you love the Lord with all your heart. A young Jewish boy lived in Germany in the early 1800s. His father was a successful merchant and he led his family in the practice of their Jewish faith. They later moved to England and the boy was surprised to see that his father joined a Lutheran church. And so one day he asked him, Dad, why did you join the Lutheran church? And his father said, well, son, we're, we're living in a different place now and there are a lot more Lutherans here and so I decided it would be better for my business to become a Lutheran. And that boy who had a developing interest in religion lost it all. His name was Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto in which he said, religion is the opiate of the people. Kids can spot a phony, and so can God. And he wants our love to be, first of all, sincere. And then secondly, we're to love him selflessly. Look again at verse 5. It says, with all your soul. What is your soul? Well, your soul is the real you. It's the real you beneath the makeup and the hairdo and the physique. You are to love the Lord with your whole self, with your total self. You are to be totally given over to God, holding nothing back. It's to be a selfless love. There is to be no area of your life that is off limits to God. And then thirdly, we're to love Him strongly. Verse 5, with all your might. You are to love the Lord with every inch every ounce, every muscle, every nerve, every sinew, every bit of your energy, your physical strength, your intellectual strength, your emotional strength, your financial strength. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That is the practical fulfillment of the first commandment because the first commandment is essentially this, God is to be first, and he's to have no competition. You say, well, how do I put God first? Well, in closing, let me make this real practical. In fact, you, you can take a, a piece of paper, you can take your bulletin, and on the left side of the page, you can write down this acrostic, first, F-I-R-S-T. And let me suggest some ways you can measure this. After the F, write finances. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God wants to be first in your finances. And that's essential. That's why the Bible talks so much about Money, because money is the number one test of your priorities. In fact, everybody just take out your checkbook and hand it to the first person in front of you. Now, I knew you wouldn't do that because it's a command. 
But why won't you do that? You say, well, that's personal. You're right. What's written on those little lines and the amounts reveal the priorities of your life. Because what you spend your money on says what is important to you. And that's why giving is so crucial. I don't care what you say. If you are not giving, God is not first. If God is not first in your finances, He is not first in your life. That's why in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says that we're to give on the first day of the week. Why that day? Because that's the day we gather together to worship. And giving is an act of worship. When I give to God, I am saying, God, you're first. After the I, I want you to write interests. What do you talk about? What do you get excited about? What, what lights you up? And while you're thinking about those things, let me ask you this question. Do those things detract from your interest in God or do they enhance it? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You can eat for the glory of God. You can play golf for the glory of God. You can collect stamps for the glory of God. But those same interests can become obsessions. And when they become obsessions, they become other gods. If God is going to be first, you must put Him first in your interests, in your pastimes, your fun times, your recreations, your amusements, your hobbies. After the R, I want you to write relationships. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Bad company corrupts good character. Now, why is that? Because you become like the people you spend the most time with. If you spend a lot of time with people who take God lightly, you will tend to become a casual believer. And if you spend a lot of time with people who take God seriously, you will become more committed. What kind of relationships are you building? See, it's a lot easier to pull somebody down than it is to pull somebody up. After the S, I want you to write schedule. Ephesians 5, 16 and 17 says you're to be making the most of your time and understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, how do you make the most of your time? Well, you put God first in your schedule. That's real easy. You just make a to-do list, and then you ask God which one of these things He wants you to do first. You know, we all complain about not having enough time. But we have enough time to do the will of God. If we don't have enough time, then we are doing some things that are not the will of God. And I believe the key to this is making a daily appointment with God. doesn't matter when. doesn't really matter how long. 10 to 15 minutes. You can do it in the morning before you go to work. You can do it at lunch. You can take your apple out to the car. Uh, you can do it 
in the evening when the kids are in bed, but you take that time and you make an appointment to be with God. If Jesus did that, then we need to do that. And then in that context, you say, God, you review my schedule. And you set my priorities. After the T, I want you to write troubles. Psalm 50, 15, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. When you face unexpected problems and pressures, who do you call? Your congressman? 911? Ghostbusters? You know, we often say, I guess all we can do now is pray. Well, prayer should not be your last resort. It should be your first option. When you're undercut by a competitor, when you're slammed by your boss, when you get that bad medical report, God wants you to run to Him. He wants to be first in your good times and your bad times. Let me make this real simple for you. You want a simple way to tell when God is first in your life. When God is first in your life, you will stop worrying. W-O-R-R-Y. Worry is like the warning light on your dashboard. When you're worrying, it's saying you're playing God. When you're worrying... It's saying you are taking on responsibilities that God never intended for you to have. When you are worrying, it's saying you are trusting in other gods. When God is not first in my finances, I worry. When God is not first in my interests, I worry. When God is not first in my relationships, I worry. When God is not first in my schedule, I worry. When God is not first in my troubles, I worry. It was in a sermon on worry that Jesus said these words in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The antidote to worry is to put God first. And that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me because it all starts there. I'm going to ask David and Pam Clegg to come forward so that you'll get a chance to encourage them at the close of the service. And as they're coming, I'll ask you to bow your heads and let's just close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time today. We thank you for the beginning of this study in the Ten Commandments. And as we consider the first one today, Lord, I pray that we would honestly open our hearts before you and let you probe inside us and analyze whether you're really first in our lives. And if you're not, that we'll get that settled today so that we can go from here not only to be the people you want us to be, but to impact others, especially our children, to teach them and illustrate for them what you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Yeah.